This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, so we just finished talking to Dave Tomlinson, who's the originator yeah. of the, the name Bad Christian, unbeknownst to us when we came up with the name. Um, and it was a terrific conversation. Didn't you enjoy that, Toby? Oh, man, did I? I mean, it's just, okay, a couple things. One, like we had, we had Jules Evans on last week. British people, it just doesn't <laughs> matter. Whatever they say sounds so much better. You know what I mean? Like it just mm-hmm. sounds better. When you, when you change British to uh, Greer, South Carolina <laughs> – you know, now like, some people appreciate a southern accent, but you know, but more yeah. like Carl Lee and Sling Blade. You yeah, know. but a but a southern accent <laughs> is it is, is helps you to make people laugh. Yeah, I know. or it makes yeah. you laugh. A British right. accent, you go, oh, I better take, yeah. better take, see what there's happening. And then even their joke, even their bad words aren't bad. They say bullocks and or bloody or something. They, that's like really bad over there. But here we're like, it's adorable. And they get to say the c u n t word a lot. I know they can say they and pull it, it off great. the way I can't. I can't believe you spelled that. <laughs> wow, you are changing, yeah, know, my friend. You're getting older. I got the dad now. Got kids. He spelled the word. I spelled it. Good <laughs> lord! I didn't, I didn't think Spence was on I this podcast anymore. I'll say it. The word's Joey Spence. And t- I'll say it. <laughs> no, right, man, right. don't do that. Bleep that out. I didn't use out. it. I didn't call anybody. Bleep it, it I didn't out. Use it in a British way, but that's the word. My God, I can't believe it. Uh but it was just great talking to him. I mean, I just he uh, it, he didn't say that word. No, Probably. he did. <laughs> no, but he is somebody. That, 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 here's why you're going to love this interview, folks. He is more. Uh, he was thinking all these things decades before we were. Anything about the bad Christian podcast? He's. I mean, I can't believe how much his definition of bad Christian lines up with what Better we. Than ours, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what what I had hoped this podcast would be. It's really amazing. I mean, even. He even wrote post-evangelical in the '90s, and we we're talking about post-Christianity now. Like we we're thinking of this these terms and what what are we actually going through? And he was thinking through all this, and it's so so good. And I love the fact that he retained his Christianity in a way that he can sleep at night, or you know, it, it, it's palatable. He he didn't have to give up his faith. I was thinking we didn't get to talk about this in the podcast, so I'll just say it here, but. I was thinking, because people more and more, I believe, think, especially in my own family, that I'm lost, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm lost. I'm not, I'm, I'm not really much of a Christian anymore. And I keep telling, and my brain keeps going, no, you are. Like, you, you are. You're not give, giving it up. There's something. And so I would say I had this thought um, over the last few weeks, and I, and I wrote it down. Might as well just read it, because it might be easier if I do. I said, I think I keep hanging around Christianity. Because I believe in needing someone to help us, right? And and uh, and I used to. I, I, what I always would say is, I believe that we need a savior, right? Mm-hmm. Someone mm-hmm. to forgive us of our sins. I think that's starting to fade too. That we need a savior. And I wrote this down, so I'm just going to read. But uh, 
But now I think Jesus didn't come to forgive us. And this is people, you know, <laughs> the listeners at home, they, well, we got Michael Gunger here. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but to help us forgive ourselves and others. Um, because I see that the we can't forgive anybody. I wrote this down. I said, that's a really bad virus right now that we can't forgive anybody. Because it doesn't matter if Jesus can say, I forgive you. Unless you believe you can be forgiven and forgive yourself, it does because it, when I, and I, and I, I mean I've told this story on the podcast a few times ago, uh, a few 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 times, maybe years ago. But uh, Matt, you know the story. When I was in second grade, there was a young lady that liked me and her friend. And I can remember the names. I'll just leave them out. And they were. But when they liked me in second grade, they picked on me. And I thought they were just picking on me. I thought she, but I was like, I thought you liked me, but you're picking on me. You're saying mean stuff to me. That I'm feeling hurt, hurt, hurt. And I told her, I said, she said something mean to me one day. Little did I know that she actually liked me, wanted me to be her boyfriend. Uh, and I said, I hope your brother dies. And that popped into my head because I had heard loosely that her brother was sick. And I thought, oh, this will sting her. But I didn't. One is I didn't want a brother to die. I didn't want any of that. Two weeks later, he died of cancer. And mm-hmm. I, from that age, what, how old was I in second grade? I was probably seven. seven, eight years old. I carried that, that I somehow contributed in a harsh way to her brother's death. It, not that I'd killed him, but that I was callous or that I was a bad kid. Only a bad person would say that, and I didn't even realize that. I mean, like, I didn't realize I was carrying that for a very long time, like in my 20s, 30s, 40s. Like, I didn't realize little Toby thought that that was that big of a deal. Like, I did, though, Like, because, I mean, there was a, from that moment, I wasn't able to forgive myself as much. I started thinking, buying more and more into the Christianity of, you are shit. I told Fat Mike <laughs> that. We were sitting yeah. at the, in the, there's video of it where I said, no, we're bad, right? And I, and I, because I, I can't forgive Toby because he did that shit. I know no nobody on earth knows more about the shit that Toby has done or thought than Toby, and so I struggle with forgiving that guy because he's done a lot of bad stuff, right? And so I, I avoided or I I look to this outside uh, way of forgiving me so I don't have to because I can't because that's hard. In order to forgive myself, then I have to actually say I'm worth it, that I made a mistake, and that it's okay now, even if it hurts somebody else. Do whatever you can to help, you know, the, the the lady. I apologized to her, and she even said it's okay, and she forgave me, but I didn't forgive myself of that. And I just keep thinking now more and more because, you know, also, the one time I spoke in tongues, the only thing that came out of it was the word forgiveness. And I've been wrestling with that for decades now, and I just am realizing more and more that Jesus allows us. He's a, a father figure, mother, whatever you, however you want, brother figure, whatever, family member, that allows you to go, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing here? You got to learn forgiveness, and it's for you, and it's for other people. And I don't see that. I mean, when I call it a virus, a lack of forgiveness, it is. And we we do not want to forgive anybody. We want vengeance. We want justice. We want righteous, you know, uh, flames and swords of God and and the right side to come down and kill the enemy. And I just I'm seeing that more and more in my own life that the forgiveness has to start with yourself. As silly as that sounds, or as Foo-foo, you know, yourself, but I have to learn to forgive myself, and I think that's what Jesus is teaching me. Forgive myself, and that way I can forgive other people, too. I can really forgive them, not just go, okay, yeah, it's all right, get out of it, you know. Cause yeah, I how are you going to forgive somebody else if you can't forgive yourself? Like, if you right. don't get it, why are you going to give it to some other fucking right. body who is actual dickhead? 
And it's just something you right. say, and then you carry it. Yeah. And then it becomes yeah. anxiety and fear and depression because yeah. you can't face the truth. I can't face the truth sometimes. I just can't. And that's why I'm, you know, I'm trying to word things the right way and say them the right way so I can somehow convince myself or actually do it. I've been convincing myself that I've been forgiving, forgiving but I haven't at all. Mm. And so, and then, you know, so um, I think a lot of what we talk about in this podcast kind of resonates with that thought of who God is and how our belief system works and sometimes helps us avoid what is real or what could be or our thoughts. You know, he talks about being a black sheep and a square peg and a round hole. All the, I mean, all this, this conversation is just phenomenal to me. I, 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 I was, you know, we talked a lot, but not near as much. We listened a lot in this one. I think it's pretty great. Yeah, I like this type of interview when you talk to somebody and it's just, you know, it's very present just being there with him and you can tell that we're on the same wavelength to whatever degree that it's just a really comfortable, real conversation. I really like that about it. And it's it comes at a great time of, you know, ability to reflect on the whole journey of Bad Christian, which in some ways is complete. Like we, uh, you know, in some ways we started off on a way and we've been through a ton and we're not where we started. Joey's not here and... You know, there's something that feels like we've been on a journey, and even this conversation yeah. fit, feels like really, really right for me to be able to just art, look back on the, the the origin of the term "bad Christian" to where we are today. I can do that whole thing with one deep breath and look at the whole thing. That's really neat. That's like we've been around so long doing this dumb stuff that we're doing, trying to work this stuff out, that I can see the whole thing as one thing that we have, right. uh, one whole project that we've been on for a while. Um, and it's not a, an original project of ours. It's one that many, you know, it's like from the inside, I never never looked at it that way. So I'm doing this. I came up with this. I'm trying to make this. We want this to happen. But that's not, when you look at people's whole lives, you can see that they have episodes to them and those episodes are resonant and rhyme with other people's and I'll, you know I anyway, I never had that perspective before but uh, appreciate it now so I thought Dave was was terrific and gracious so um right. well it's we'll, going to be a good one so we'll get to it in just a second but before we do we got to talk about the question mm-hmm. uh that's coming out August 12th and that's next week <laughs> yep now the question is the album that has on it what I consider to be our most most defining lyric, which is it's not our job to make anyone believe from the Freddie Mercury song. Um, and you know, the album is called the question and this is back 2005. Um, and it's, I don't know, we've been big on questions and all this stuff. The whole, it's been a theme forever. Even Emery's music, there's bad Christian, but that just sprouts out of what Emery naturally is exploring and doing lyrically and everything anyway. Um, so to have the question be, uh, where we're at, where it's at now and to have re, redone it and do it in full the way we're doing here um i'm just in the middle of the mix now and it's just so great i mean i love the way it feels um the album in a way is like this young youthful exuberant polished example of what the question is and it's so idealistic you know yeah. and then this i don't know if it's where we 16 years later, 17 years later or something now the whole thing captured in 40 minutes in real time with who we are, knowing the parts, believing in them, what what what's le- what it is today is what it really is over time. And it's, an, it's a great punctuation to the early album, which in a way is the first way the question ever existed is in this demo, this album, right. this MP3. And now there's a fuller version 
um, that's a real moment of, of, of us six making these sounds and saying those words and capturing it to our highest uh, ability with the best, you know, just that from a mature yeah. thing. And it's, I love it. It's turning out so good. Um, we just got the first cut of it. So the song should be out now. So cold. We should have that available so people can see it. Um, and then that should, you know, if it has, if you have any, um, interest in it at all, it will leave you wanting to, you know, get a ticket to come watch the whole premiere event, which is August 12th. Um, the whole thing's going to roll. So, um, I'm quite pumped about the event. I think it's, um, on a, it's a really, I don't know what else to say about it, but I think people are going to really feel like it's a great experience to watch and be yeah. part of. And you know what goes great with watching the Let's question? tell them a link before you... Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, link is momenthouse.com forward slash Emory. Yeah, and Moment House is the platform we're showcasing it on, which is a mm-hmm. really great company. It's been pretty fun to be able to work with them. So that's why that's the link, momenthouse.com forward slash Emory. Um, and then right before we get to it, what I was going to say, though, is the best thing that goes with uh, watching the question live uh, would be a... Awesome, having awesome sex right before. So go something's vibrating. Yeah, yeah, like a vibrator after the show, maybe. You know, uh, you you got to do it before, not after. Like you go to the concert and then. I mean, you know, yeah, I I think it's before and after, (laughs) right? (laughs) And uh, you get all all the things that you need at marriagesupply.com. I mean, you could do it. You could, you know, if you go to an Emory concert and you start really getting handsy with your girlfriend or wife, you'll get kicked out. But if you Actually, use sex toys on your partner during this live stream. You won't yeah. get in trouble, right? That's a new experience that you've yeah. never been able to have. You, you, when the question's beaming into your living room, do what you will. There's no I security. Know. I know. So, I mean, there's, yeah, it's just it's just you and your babe. Mm-hmm. So, whatever All right. happens, happens. Let's uh, bring on Dave. All right, pardon the interruption, but uh, check this out. According to Forbes, gyms, nail salons, hotels, mom-and-pop stores, and a bunch more are all set to go on what they're calling an epic hiring spree in the coming months to meet the pent-up demand for all these services. So basically, a bunch of people are ready to get back out there, and these uh, they're allowed to do it, so the companies are figuring out ways to do it, and of course, that's going to mean a lot of hiring. So, I mean, if you just think about some of the stuff you're excited to return to um, or already have started to return to that's like the gym there's a gym down by my house that i've been wanting to go to for the last year because they've got a great swimming pool and they just have had limited stuff so that's one thing i'm going back to uh, i hear people talking about doing comedy shows indoors of course we're doing concerts um as time moves on movie theaters are big i know my wife is going back to the spas that are, ha- are taking more clients and stuff like that so all these businesses are reopens and that are reopening and that means that there's millions of jobs that are going to need to be filled so where do these businesses Businesses turn to fill these roles fast. Well, ZipRecruiter, of course, you guys know that. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. Now, when you post a job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to over 100 top job sites, uh, and they've given you access to their network of millions of job seekers. So that's quite Nice. ZipRecruiter's matching technology scans the resumes to find the qualified candidates for your open roles, and it proactively presents them to you. You can easily review the recommended candidates, and you can invite your top choices to apply. That saves you a ton of time. Laser focus. Pull the signal from the noise. Get the top candidates. Get them to apply. Pay attention to those people and find the right one. According to ZipRecruiter's internal data, Jobs where employers invite candidates to apply get two and a half times more candidates. 
So ZipRecruiter's technology is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian because ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. How's it going, Dave? I'm good. How are you? I'm just doing. I'm doing very good. It's nice to see you and hear your voice. Thank you. You too. Um, my name's Matt, and this is Toby. I know you talked to Toby a little bit already, just to set up. But what we have in mind is just spend some time together, get to know each other, and see how many uh, resonant thoughts that we have. Because I think we have a lot of uh, similarities and resonant thoughts across time. Um, and so we thought that would be a nice conversation to have. But I don't know if you have anything particular in I, mind, or do you have a, a time you need to be done? No, that sounds good to me, and uh, I'm I'm here for you. Excellent. Um, well, one of the things that is I'm going to be interested in seeing, and I don't think you get this as as much. Being you know you kind of self proclaimed uh, liberal Christian, I'm sure you've gotten that for a long time. But I, I'm I think you might be more Christian than me. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I might look to you, I think you're a little bit more conservative. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I'm, I'm not often accused of being conservative, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's but interesting. Think, uh, Go ahead. Sorry. There are times when I think people recognize perhaps um, I don't know. There's more of a kind of there's more of a kind of committed heart than maybe sometimes comes across in things I say, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. For well, sure. so that- to, to me, I receive you in the territory of somebody um, that is uh, really in touch with the rebellious spirit or the counter to the mainstream of things, um, and particularly in Christianity. But the more I, the more older I get, the more I recognize things from uh, mischievous kids to class clowns to uh, people doing Christianity different or trying to look at politics different or anything that is. Uh, there's this mass version of. Uh, you keep finding people that feel that they were square pegs um, and things like that. That that sometimes they they become uh they may be mischievous or seen as a bad guy to some but but they're able to um express other point of views that are resonant with other people in ways that become dangerous and you get labeled as things and and stuff like that but you strike me as that kind of guy i mean in politics we've got this whole phenomenon of populism you know which you've obviously had with with the trump business but it's around the world really we've got it here we've got it's in europe and elsewhere and i think that it's very easy to suddenly feel that there's a kind of this mass wave of opinion that it can feel quite hard to stand up against and i think there's an equivalent of that in the christian world too there is a form of christian populism you know which which can be quite triumphalist and um you know quite sort of aggressive towards anything that doesn't fit that particular kind of mode of of thinking and believing. And I think I've found really from back in, you know, back in the early night, well, when I I wrote the post-evangelical, a book back in 1993, and uh, I think from that point onwards, I've just had a non-stop stream of people who basically feel that I've given them a voice, you know, that, uh, so you, you suddenly find that when you, you, you could look at a, a sort of, you could look at a congregation of people in a church and think, 
they're all pretty on board here. They're all quite conformist. Um, but that's because sociologically, churches are really difficult places to stand up and give a different voice in, you know. Mm. And so I think that when somebody that is recognizable, that has a voice out there, you know, speaks something different, you know, the, the response I get from people is one of great relief. You know, if people say, oh, my goodness, at last somebody said that, you know. And it's not that I think I am necessarily saying things that are completely novel and brand new and original. I think often it's saying things that are already there in people's minds and hearts, but they haven't actually felt able to acknowledge them or, or own them, and much less to speak them out, really. That's a great way to say it. I think that has that in true uh, in t- in common with comedy as well. Just to name the unspoken thing, uh, right. which is really a Voldemort concept from Harry Potter. It's like the in organizations and everywhere. It's like what is the thing that can't be said here? You know that doesn't take a genius to say it. It just takes a little bit of courage. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Exactly. That's right. Which is what I think over and over. You know, I think um, you know, and, and sometimes people come back and say, "Oh my goodness," you know. That's so kind of, you know, and I think, well, you know, it really isn't rocket science, actually. I think a lot of it is is about kind of common sense, really, you know. But I think that, you know, in, in uh, at the beginning of, of my book, The Black Sheep and Prodigal, which in a way, even that title summarizes some of what we're talking about here, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I began by saying that I probably have a conformity deficit, <laughs> conformity <Yeah>. deficit. <laughs> <laughs> so when someone says, you know, you have to believe this or you have to do that, then I've just got this something inside that immediately says, hang on. <laughs> uh, it's been there all um, your life. You know, How I far back like does that. that go? Sorry? How far back does that go for you? You've been that way your whole life? I think it goes back a long way. I was just going to say that my dad, uh, you know, who was a kind of uh, – you know, well, I grew up in a in a in a brethren church background. Do you know the brethren? Um, I don't, I'm not familiar with it's it. Quite a narrow kind of, very fundamentalist, very Bible based. You know, it's Father, Son, and Holy Scripture sort of outlook. And um, and so my dad was was uh, was very much like that. But um, about you know, not just about religious things, but about life in general. He he always used to say that I was pig headed. You know pig-headed. because. Uh, so that was how he saw it. Uh, yeah. And uh, I suppose, really, it's been a trait that's been there all along, although, you know, it's been quite a long journey. And sometimes you're, I mean, I, I was a leader in what in this country we call the house church movement for 20 years or so, you know, which, you know, I, I kind of rose to quite dizzy heights in that when I was in my early 20s. And, uh, and it was a, it was a big sort of burgeoning thing really. And, um, but it was, it was very kind of triumphalist. It was very, you know, this is the kingdom. This is the way helped along, I may say, by a few big voices from across the pond where you are. Who um, were those voices at the time? And what, well, was what years of, was that? So we're talking now in the seventies and it was really what, what were known at the time as the Fort Lauderdale five, I think they were called. You know, those, those, um, they may have long gone from the scene now, but people like Bob Mumford and um, Derek Prince uh, and Baxter, there, was, there were these guys who had become this sort of consortium. They were all kind of big platform speakers, you know, and uh, very articulate and focused around the sort of, it, it was very much an emphasis on shepherding, you know, yeah. um, 
discipleship and shepherding. And, and so it was very pyramidal. And it entered this country at a time when this house church movement, which was really people who, you know, had had some kind of experience of the spirit, you know, what we now call charismatic, um, which had led them either to be, you know, cold-shouldered out or to leave conventional churches. And so it began literally in people's homes. But this very quickly grew into, you know, being in, in schools and cinemas and, you know, community centres. And so it was, it was a big growing thing in the 1970s. And we had, you know, conferences that were gathering thousands of people together in this sort of uh, this movement that was going on. And so there were, there were these guys from the States coming over uh, who seemed to kind of, you know, they had, a, they had quite a lot of authority about them. Um, they were very articulate men, very powerful men. And they were all men. And, uh, and I think that the movement that I was a part of here sort of bought into this quite sort of hierarchical sort of structure of, you know, everyone is, is being discipled or shepherded by somebody else, you know. Now, I happened to end up pretty much at the top of one of those pyramids. <laughs> but it happened at such a young age for me that... I hadn't really worked out who I was, you know, or what I thought. I hadn't, I hadn't really got my theology at all straight, what, where I was going, you know. So I kind of grew up whilst being a national figure in this, you know, a platform speaker and traveling other places around the world. And, and so I was kind of growing up and suddenly going into this critical mode where this little, um, you know, kind of deficit disorder, a conformity deficit thing I spoke of was really coming alive in me. And uh, so inevitably that led to quite a big crash, really. I had a really big sort of falling out with the other kind of leading figures in this country in that movement. Was it that they were pressing you to do things that you started seeing as wrong? Like, I just typed it in, and it, you're right, it came up as shepherding movement. Anybody wants to look it up, the shepherding movement uh, yeah. it just came up on Wikipedia, and you're right. It, it strangely reminds me of, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with some of the churches in the States, but I was a worship leader, and Matt was a worship leader as well, at a church called Mars Hill in Seattle. Right, and, yeah, yeah. And, and the leader there, Mark, Mark Driscoll, was very masculine. Like you mentioned, it was only men. And it seems like the shepherding movement was about kind of being a, a tougher, more committed man in a way. I, I don't know if that totally grasps the whole of it. That's a little generalized, but it does feel that way. Well, I, that, think it was, I think it was, uh, it was a very testosterone form of spirituality, you know, mm. and, and, and literally did have an emphasis on male headship in it. I mean, that was part of it. So the elders and leaders of these churches would, would be male. Um, and, but, but it was more than that. It was the whole nature of, of this spirituality, you know, that was all kind of, you know, all conquering, um, you know, it was almost a kind of spiritual jihadi, you know, right. jihadist thing. <laughs> that, that, you know, this is, this is the kingdom and you better join it or else right. you've had it, you know. And a lot of confidence, um, it seems. Yeah, that's right. So the more that this kind of was growing and emerging, the more I was kind of falling apart on the inside with, with the whole thing and feeling that this just does not fit. And so there was, there's a guy here. He's no, he's no longer with us now, but there was uh, one particular guy called Bryn Jones who was one of the leading figures. I mean, we, we were 
the kind of key figures in this were all recognized as apostles because it was also about restoring New Testament church ministry and stuff, you know. So, so I, I kind of, I, I stumbled into becoming an apostle, really. I don't, know, I don't even know how that happened. But it meant that I was, you know, I led a team. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, before I gave it all up, I was leading a team of 15 people full time with oversight of about 60 churches uh, you know, which were all growing, burgeoning things in different parts of the country and some overseas too. Um, but, but as I say, I kind of came into a head-on with, with, with Bryn, uh, who I liked a lot as a man, you know. Um, but he was basically, you know, kind of exercising this kind of top-down authority in which he, he actually... Uh, I mean, it all came to a head, really, where one particular church of several hundred people that was part of his kind of outfit rather than mine uh, disagreed with them on something. And so he basically excommunicated them. You know, they became off off limits, you know. And uh, so no one else was supposed to have anything to do with them. And I just couldn't. I knew the people. They were, mm-hmm. they were people I counted friends. So I, I went on meeting with them and went to preach in their church. And basically, this led to a prolonged head-on, really, uh, which 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 led me to having to walk away from it all, you know. And it was a big deal at the time, oh, um, uh, oh, you sorry. know, because you suddenly find that friendships that you were relying on were not actually really that solid. When it, you know, they were friendships that were conditional on that we all are part of this, you know. I'd like to so spend some me, more time on, on – oh, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go on. I, I, say I'm, I mean, I'm not in a hurry to rush on past this at all. I really am fascinated, um, and I didn't know all this before talking to you today, but, you know, the the nature of it being pyramidal, as you said, um, and, and the way this all fits together is just really fascinating because it's uh, it makes me f- – feel that these things cycle and go, you know, it's very similar to experiences that we've had um, a generation later. Um, And people always tell you that there's nothing new. It's just another one of these. It's just things happen again. But to me, it felt everything I do always feels like it's a new thing. But then come to find out it's usually an old thing or an old pattern. Um, And I think we're, you know, due for some more pyramidal type things. I think there's a lot of movements that go that way. Um, and there's some organic part of it where it's like a scene, like a music scene or a house church. Like there's some energy about that. Um, the Mark Driscoll thing, that came out of a movement called the Emergent Church Movement, which sounds just like the thing you're talking about, except for it was in the 90s. And yeah. it was all these different um, men together trying to reclaim that spirit or do it differently or counterculturally, even though they weren't necessarily aligned. And o- over time, they become became disaligned and stuff like that. But at, at some point, there was a scene and a movement of a bunch of people trying really hard to make countercultural change um, results based, like all all of that kind of thing. To and, and they and then when you start getting things to work um, and you start getting traction, it seems like evidence for the movement. And then you start to attract more people, and then it becomes different because you have the people that come later are different than the, the early founders, and then the early founders get lost in their own. Uh, set of movement so even if you're trying to be reactionary um that's what i'm curious about is did it feel like the whole thing you were trying to do was trying to be independent and house church and decentralized it seemed like that was almost the point but then it became centralized that's exactly right because actually the house church movement which 
you know, the roots of which go back into the late 60s in, in the UK, um, began as this very democratic, anarchic, you know, structuralist thing, because that was what people were rebelling against. They were looking right. for the spirit, you know. Mm. And so it was quite kind of folksy and kind of homespun. Uh, you know, everyone, anyone could turn up with a guitar and play. There wasn't a worship band. There wasn't all those kind of structures. It was, it was, and there's, it was, you know, as I say, very anarchic, but actually I look back on it with quite a smile on my face, you know, but, but very quickly this moved on to, um, you know, being seduced really by the idea that, you know, you've got to have leadership. And so much of this comes down to, you know, personalities, really. I mean, I mean, I decided quite early on in the so-called charismatic movement that, you know, the charisma had changed. The charisma which began as the, the charism of the spirit, the gift of the spirit, became charismatic in the more general sense of the term, that it's about charismatic individuals, you know, and people who were platform people and, you know, rabble rousers. And I think the thing is, you know, it's a bit like the, the political scene I was mentioning, you know, that this this trend of populism. I think that part of the the energy and the power for that is that we live in such an uncertain world. You know, mm -hmm. there are so many uncertainties that we live with every single day. I mean, the pandemic just has, has epitomized that. But I think that, you know, there's there's a market in the midst of all of that for certainty, for black and white truth, for leaders who can show us the way, who can lead us out of here, who can show us, you know, or in religious terms, you know, Christian terms, who can really bring the voice of God to us, who can, you know, really sh sort of bring us the prophetic word and all that kind of stuff, you know. So I think that, um, you know, in in a an atmosphere of fear and uncertainty and a longing to sort of have categories nice and clear cut. Um, this, this presents a ripe situation for, you know, charismatic individuals to emerge. And um, as I say, it's exactly the same really as you see in politics, as you, as you can see in the church too, but it's all, it's all deception. And I, I think the thing I take heart from, because often people say to me, you know, that it looks like the only churches that are really growing and growing are these kind of, you know, these really full-on fundamentalist kind of theology-type churches and stuff. And you can think the same thing when you look at what's happening in our political scene. It seems as if, you know, everybody's going for this kind of, um, you know, what ends up being, well, for us here, it's, it's what we would call the Little Britain kind of thing, you know, that, you know, we've got to draw our borders and know who we are and mm -hmm. us against everybody else sort of thing. And there's, and the same longing exists and has always been around, I think in the Christian scene, but it's a, it's a deception. And I think that what I, the way I answer people when they, they feel afraid that that's where it's going is to say, do you know what? There is another whole market out there. There's a whole market. There's a whole, there are waves and waves of people who don't buy into this. And, um, and, and so we need, I think, a, a sort of similar rabble rousing that is that is saying, do you know what? There's another way to to this kind of uh, marketplace of black and white certainties, of exclusivism, of us against you know 
everything else, really. But doesn't uh, it start pure, pure? Like, it didn't start as a deception. It wasn't a con from the get-go or anything. Like, it was all right intentions when it started as the as a movement? Or I think so many things do start out like that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's... Um, it, it, we're probably talking the story of church history, actually, you know, uh, and maybe the history of the world. Uh, so I think that things have a lifespan. And um, I mean, the way that the way that the thing I can remember back to in this country with the whole house church world and, and that kind of stuff was, um, first of all, it was it was when um, we're seeing all this kind of outpouring of wonderful things going on, you know, and it was all very exciting and, and very innocent in a way, quite naive uh, in just reaching for a new experience of the spirit and so on, you know. And I remember there's a guy, he's um, uh, a guy from Argentina um, called Orville Swindle. His brother is Charles Swindle, actually, who is a big figure in, in evangelicalism in the States, isn't he? And I remember him coming and speaking to a leaders event where we were all gathered. And he said that uh, he, he'd had this vision that when, when it pours with rain, you know, when it rains and rains and rains, um, after the rain, the effect is just lost. It's just a flood that dissipates. What you need is dams, you know, and, and dams can kind of hold the water. So this was a kind of picture, a kind of metaphor for saying that what you need is structure, you know, that it's all right having all this kind of, you know, spiritual kind of fizzy stuff going on and everything else, but you need structure. And maybe there's a sort of truth in that. But I think that I see that as being a kind of, a, a kind of seduction of what happened here in this country, where suddenly we, we've, we've shifted a whole into a whole different sphere in which you've got this hierarchical structure uh, of so-called ministries, which is all basically about kind of top-down control, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and as I say, the only reason that that can ever find any kind of traction, I think, is because there is a certain hunger in most people to have authoritative kind of guidance and and black and white truth that that they can absolutely depend on, you know. Is there, is there safety in that, Dave? Like I was just, okay, so it, it's very interesting to me and, and helpful for, for me. I'd like to ask you this question because I've been trying to think about it for so long. Uh, like I was saying, we at Mars Hill, but even before that, I grew up very, you know, we call him charismaniac, evangelical. My, my grandfather was a pastor, you know, speaking in tongues, running across the tops of the pews, you know, it was filled with the Holy Spirit, all of that stuff. And there was something in my youth, probably my 20s, the same way I was attracted to a Mark Driscoll character or a strong masculine character. And it seems similar. You were too. Like the certain, was it the certainty? What was it that, like, even though, you know, later you were able to step away from it, it took you a little while to get out of that cloud of it. What is it you think, especially, and if we can just even just talk about men. What is it about men that are so drawn to that? Because I felt like the same way when you were talking about men need to be the leader of the household. I did. I wasn't thinking, oh, you know, I'm the man, and I, I what I say goes. I was thinking I need to do that for my wife. You know, I was. I, I thought I was doing 
I really was trying to do it for with good intentions. My wife does maybe need a leader, or our family does, and and I'm the guy that's supposed to do that. I'm being a wimp or lazy or spending my time doing all this other stuff. And and you know th- these pastors can call this stuff out, and it feels like yeah, call to action. We're going, you know, almost like uh, warriors headed out to the battlefield or something like that. W- what was it for you that drew you in so strongly that you were able to rise up and be like a leader in it? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, I think that you're right, that safety is a factor in it. And and in fact, the opposite of that was part of the threat that held people in place, you know, sort of saying, if you don't kind of fit in with this, then you're not going to be safe. You're going to be in a vulnerable place. You'll be able to be picked off by the enemy or whatever, you know. And so there, there's... You know, I mean, very few things in this world which you could identify as being in some way wrong haven't got some element of right in them. You know, mm-hmm. it, that's that's the dichotomy, really. I think the problem is when things get out of skew, when you get a kind of imbalance, when you get an excess of, of something, uh, and then what would otherwise be the counterpoints, the essential counterpoints, get kind of completely abandoned and 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 then I think you're you're in all kinds of trouble, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've never really thought about exactly what it was in me. I, I think that um yeah I think that probably as a young man uh finding out who I was, there was something very attractive about strong, confident guys, you know, mm-hmm. and um and when I had the, the, the good fortune, if you like, in that world to be drawn into that, to sort of become one of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, that, that all felt kind of good for a bit. Yeah. But then quite quickly, as I say, I began to kind of see through it all and feel, do you know what, round peg, square hole, um, this is not me at all, you know. Right. The I way think- that... Continue. Yeah, I don't ever mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. I think that the issue then for me was where do I fit? You know, where do I fit? Because I'd I'd had I'd had nothing to do with the kind of mainstream, like in in this country, the, the Anglican Church, the Church of England. You know, to me that was kind of like a lost cause over there somewhere. Um, but it's interesting that when when I actually finally turned my back on that whole kind of world of, of the house churches, because uh, I went through several phases of it. And it was by the end of the 1980s that I kind of stepped out of the whole lot, not knowing where I fitted at all. And it was at that point, our kids were in their kind of mid-teens and were very disaffected with all that kind of church that we'd left behind. And them and some of their friends, uh, we began to gather and just and just have honest conversations. And before long, lots of people wanted to come in onto this. And that became known as Holy Joe's, which was kind of like a church in a pub that we began in, in the nine, around about 1990. So uh, for 10 years, you know, I led this group of uh, misfits, really. Um, and, and increasingly people who had never had anything to do with church at all, but over a pint or three of beer, you know, uh, chewing the fat that became attractive so that 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 was the next phase of my life and um, and was was a lot of fun really um, but in the midst of that 
I was going through some much more serious theological rethinks, out of which came me writing the Post-Evangelical. In 1995, that was, that was published. And, um, and also feeling that my spirituality was actually being drawn more down a sacramental kind of route, you know, and, um, uh, and, you know, I don't know if you want me to say, but I mean, w- w- where that really was triggered was I did, a, I did a master's degree in biblical hermeneutics in which I, my dissertation was on the hermeneutics of ecological theology. So looking at different models of, you know, ec- ecological theology. And actually through that, I was drawn in a more sacramental direction of, of the, the notion of the divine impregnating the material of God being present in matter and of material things and earthly things uh, mediating the divine. Um, And so that actually set a a course that did eventually lead me to become a priest in the Church of England, which I still am, Um, and a whole different kind of phase of my life, really, you know. But if I go back from when I finished when, when we started Holy Joe's in 1990, I think from that time right through to the present, an enormous amount of the focus of my life has gone to the people who are on the edges hanging on by their fingertips, you know, people whose faith is unraveling. And over those years, I couldn't tell you how many ministers and Church of England vicars and what have you have come to me like Nicodemus in the dead of night, as it were, you know, under the cover of anonymity, because their faith is absolutely unraveling and they don't know who to have a conversation with. And so they take me out for a drink or a meal or a walk in the park to have conversations they don't feel they can have anywhere else. But as time went on, working in a, in a North London parish, um, you know, there, which I did for, for, for 19 years through, through, the, through the noughties, really, um, I then began to, my focus went a bit more to the people who are outside altogether and who are probably never going to become part of the church, but who I could see were also on their own journeys, you know, spiritually, and perhaps were following Jesus better in practice than lots of people in churches. And that was what led me to come up with the notion and write the book, How to Be a Bad Christian, because it was thinking, you know, that that was a way of identifying people, the hordes of people I think there are in this country and probably elsewhere too, who, for whom creedal faith has no appeal at all, who are never going to walk into a church and just sit down and become congregants, uh, but who I think have got real spiritual aspirations and desires, uh, who want the world to be a better place, who are committed to what I would see as the way of Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. but, but may not even believe in Jesus, you know. And so that was, that was who I was sort of, and, and in a way I feel that's, so that's why, you know, somebody uh, rather accidentally described me as a liberal evangelist. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was an oxymoron. But the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that's true because a lot of liberal Christianity, I think, is very heady it's very kind of uh, you know academic um it does it's not the stuff that feeds people's souls you know it's all booky uh, and everything you know 
And, and yet I think for a long, long time, more liberal progressive values have been forged in me, but I think that they need to be proclaimed with all the zeal and tub thumping of an evangelist, uh, not to try and get people saved, but, you know, to try to show that, well, to me, it's what, it's what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God, you know, that there's another way to be in the world. And, uh, and that, I suppose, is, is the passion that drives me on day after day, really. Yeah, I think that's interesting. You uh, even talk about, I, I guess, in, in your books and, I mean, in, in your speaking engagements too, kind of that spiritual intelligence. Like we have like an emotional intelligence, you know, we have a, uh, like a, you know, academic intelligence, uh, use logic or something like that. And you're talking about that spiritual intelligence. And I'm wondering that spiritual intelligence uh, oftentimes because I'm, I'm still learning about that myself or even myself that there is danger in that. Like you, you know, if you, your emotions, you know, you can go, well, this is the way I feel. And you can kind of explain that sometimes, or, you know, you're logically, you can say, well, look, this is what, you know, two plus two is, or whatever it might be. Your spiritual intelligence oftentimes feels it's an experience, you know, your emotional, your spiritual intelligence is almost like an emotional, I mean, a, an experience that you're having that then leads you somewhere or guides you somewhere. And I feel like that's dangerous because especially like in the churches I grew up in, you could only say that's Jesus. And if it's not Jesus, then it's evil or something like that, right? As opposed to exploring that. How'd you start getting that idea or that awareness? It seems like that's what led you to even the folks that don't attend church. Yeah. So what you mean is it's it's kind of, it's subjective really. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the more kind of mainstream or the more conservative Christian sort of world, the emphasis is on objectivity, which is epitomized in the Bible, isn't it really? You know, that, that, that here you've got truth. Whereas, as you say, um, you know, what I've described as spiritual intelligence is something that is quite likely to challenge the Bible, actually, or to challenge the accepted truths in, in, a, in a church context or whatever. So, yeah, of course, uh, I, I think, I mean, the, the truth is there's danger every way you, you look you know, right. <laughs> there is no danger free. So I think there's enormous danger in being so committed to what you think is the objective truth of God that you completely go down cul-de-sacs, you know. So you can go down biblical cul-de-sacs, if you like, um, and, and completely lose your way. I think in the end, it is about sort of a, a balance of things. But I think that's where community becomes very important to me. Because I think that if in this whole kind of spiritual but not religious phenomenon, you know, that people speak about, which I think is real, um, I think that the trouble is that by stepping out of the realm of religion and with that church communities and so on, you have, you have basically gone into individualism. So now the truth is totally determined by me, you know. And so people speak about, you know, this is, this is my truth. This is your truth, you know, and it becomes very individualized, which is kind of part of the consumerist, individualistic sort of postmodern world we live in anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why I think, you know, and it's interesting because I use the metaphor of being a black sheep in the title of my book, you know. And, and, of course, we think of the black sheep as being a loner, don't we? The one who's sort of stepped out and has just gone out on their own. And my question that I was asking in that book is, is it possible to have flocks of black sheep? <laughs> you know, yeah. because I think it is. 
I think it's possible to build communities which are not conformist kind of environments where everybody has to sort of bang the same drum sort of thing. Um, but nevertheless, where we are uh, influenced by each other, where we are corrected by each other, by the, in, in, the, in the tension, in the difference, in the argument, in the debate, um, that we, we all are chastened somewhat by that. So I think the community is terribly important. And that, I think, is the challenge going forward for lots of people who are kind of going the way that I'm going, um, which at the moment can seem to be taking people very often out of, you know, a, a kind of organized church context. Um, but, but I think in the long run, faith is a communal thing. Actually, being human is a communal thing. You know, uh, we, we need community, but we need community in which our individuality can find proper full expression, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, creating communities of difference, communities where, you know, there is genuine kind of embracing of difference, uh, that, that's something I feel very committed to, to, to creating and, and propagating really. And does that extend to you still pretty, are you still pretty serious about the gathering on Sunday mornings, like going to church? Do you, you think all those things are kind of a must or a big need? No, not necessarily. You know, I think that we're, we're, we're in a kind of, we're in an in-between land at the moment. And um, I think that the kind of the received model of church, you know, which with, along with the Sunday morning thing and everything, I think still has, mileage to it uh i'm part of that um but at the same time i know that this is essentially in the long run a dying thing you know um so i think that it's it's holding the two things together really so i'm i'm i suppose you'd you'd say that i'm 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 a hybrid person i'm very much into hybrid uh, and that would be true of so many things about me, really, that it's about hybrid, because I think I don't want to completely throw that out altogether because I think it still has value. But at the same time, I don't want to be locked into it because I think there, there, there's other ground to to explore, you know. So I think that in terms of, you know, I mean, a, another big influence to me would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, who, who recognized back, you know, when he, in the, in the 1940s, when he's in prison by the Nazis and he's contemplating, uh, the world as he sees it. And, and he was concluding that, um, that, that as he talked about it, uh, there was a religious consciousness, which was dying by which he meant the sort of ordinary sense in most people of, of knowing what, Christianity was about, you know, that most people would know, or if they went to church, even if they didn't go regularly, they'd know pretty much what it was about and what was going on there. And he was recognizing back then, this is now going, the, the, and the world is, as he put it, coming of age, by which he didn't mean growing up, you know, in the mature sense, but to come of age in the sense, it doesn't need the crutch anymore. And so, you know, he was looking to the future and spoke famously about the need for a religionless Christianity. And I think that's a turn of phrase which has charmed people ever since because he never had the chance to write the book 
to actually unpack what he meant by that. So it's up for, for people to guess from all different directions. But I think it's still actually an important concept because when I'm looking now at those people I'm saying, I'm referring to who are outside of the mainstream of, of faith and certainly of churchianity, um, I don't think we're going to win them in any great numbers into the Sunday morning type of thing that you just mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's a lost cause. I think it still has mileage for people who are part of it. And for some people who will still find a home there, but this, if we just go down that road, we are heading for a, for a full stop, for a dead end. For a dead end. So you you say it'll die, that it'll die of old age, basically. You, you have that in a way that you said something really fascinating. I don't remember your exact words, but you said it. We're in, you said something like the in-between times, and then you said hybrid and, and other things there. But the way you're talking about it implies um, that we're headed somewhere else. That's a, another, there's another post era. Like you, you know, you, you were saying post evangelical in the n early nineties, which is amazing. Uh, people still wrestle with anything being post because they don't want to let go of an old thing. You're continually forward thinking, obviously. Um, and y it seems to me that you're implying that the Sunday morning, the traditional thing isn't even the thing anyway. And we're headed somewhere else. I'm curious if you have any vision for that. It seems like th that you do. Like when, when well, I think, you know, when, when, when people ask me, as they often do, does the church have a future? You know, will the, will the church be here in 50 years' time or 100 years' time? Well, I don't know, and I won't actually be here <laughs> to know anyway. But I think that all the signs are, I mean, it's, 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 you're on a different trajectory in North America, but it's, it is the same trajectory, basically, the whole thing, if you look at the statistics, if you look at the picture, yes, you've got these kind of uproarious kind of, you know, mega church type things happening. Personally, I don't think that has a long-term future. I think that basically all the signs are that the kind of institutionalized forms of church that we have at the moment are heading towards a graveyard, really, and and certainly in this country, quite literally dying of old age. So that's one thing. However, do I think that the kingdom of God has a future? Absolutely, yes. I think that what Jesus spoke of and envisaged, envisaged of a new order uh, of uh, people's lives and communities reflecting more deeply the, the, the life and values that God, you know, has for them and wants for them. Uh, yeah, I think the kingdom has a future. And so I think that it, whatever happens to churches, the kingdom of God will be here in 50 and 100 years time and 1000 years. Um, but I think that the way in which it is expressed Will be will change and it is already changing and evolving. So churches are uh, and have been historically the agency of the kingdom of God. Um, they aren't the kingdom of God. You know, they're the agents mm -hmm. of the kingdom of God at their best. Um, I think something new needs to emerge. Um, so I, I can envisage new communities emerging, um, which I think in the medium term probably will be hybrid kind of things. 
But I think uh, a church at the moment, which is saying, okay, so we've got this kind of happy congregation here who are all kind of content and going along. But the number of people you can bring into that from the outside, I think is quite limited. But can we extend out and create some other forms of community, which may at the moment in a hybrid way be connected to uh, and, and joined up, but can we create other kinds of communities? Um, that's what I envisage. And I think that they, taking the kind of religionless Christianity notion of Bonhoeffer, I think will not necessarily be people who are all kind of signed up Christians, you know, um, who, who, I mean, why, why, I ask myself constantly, why over the years has the church been so obsessed with beliefs and creedalism, you know, that, that this is the kind of hallmark of everything. Because when you read Jesus in the Gospels, I don't find that. He didn't have a creed. He didn't ask people to believe anything in terms of propositional ideas. I think that Jesus was much more about orthopraxy than orthodoxy. It was more about right behavior than right belief. And that's not saying the beliefs are not important. I think they are, and I argue about them interminably you know they are important i think but they're not all important and they're not as important as they've been made out to be so i think that you know if i look at the church that you know it's a a church of england church that i was the vicar of for 19 years in north london a lot of the people that we gathered into that community uh were people who never ever envisaged themselves being part of a church you know, that was never, and they, they even, even going there every week still wouldn't think of themselves as churchgoers. Um, that's a, there's a mentality, a whole thing about that, which they didn't identify. Some of them, uh, I described one at the beginning of Black Sheep and Prodigals, actually, a woman called Nina, who would still describe herself as a Buddhist, you know, and, there, and there'd be people in that church who actually come forward and receive communion from me, um, who would say they're not absolutely sure they believe in God. You know, so you've got this kind of mixed community of people. And I suppose that's, you know, it's summarized a little bit in this thing about belonging without believing, you know, that I think the conventional church thing is to belong, you have to believe. But I think that we're moving towards a place where the believing doesn't disappear, but it becomes less the central kind of controlling factor that says whether you're part of this community or not i i think that's fascinating um and when you speak of it that way it seems like in order to achieve the thing that you're talking about it will require obviously a lot of openness and open-mindedness to what it might look like and it certainly won't be the prescriptive thing that people are trying to control and hold and maintain own and guard the boundaries of um so it seems like it's almost inevitably then going to going to be a movement or a kingdom that will include what today would probably consider like you said buddhism there'll be some eastern stuff in there there'll probably be new research there'll probably be new science there'll be stuff that's probably considered new age that will all be in the future kingdom is that the, is that sound like it's on the right track it it could well be because you know i think that i i find i have more in common with people of good faith you know uh who can't necessarily 
sign up to all the things that I might believe, I often find I've got much more kindred spirits, more in common with them than I do with people who on paper may believe quite similar things to me, you know. And so I think, you know, it's how, how will this all kind of work? I, I mean, certainly looking at the church that I, I've just mentioned, you know, where I was the vicar, um, I mean, there was no kind of apology for the fact that this was at its core a Christian community, but then it was so open. And I think that, you know, I'm not trying to create pea soup. You know, I'm not trying to kind of say everything is just all pooled in together. Right, right. Um, I think, I mean, I personally think of different religious traditions as being like different linguistic systems, you know, like each has its own grammar and its own vocabulary and Mm -hmm. its own kind of character. And I think uh, without that, it would be gobbledygook, you know, that's what gives coherence to, to, to that. But, but in, but in some religious traditions, that is more about rituals and practices than it is about beliefs. Right. You know, I think the Christianity is particularly obsessed with correct beliefs. Um, so I think that um, there are people who I think may find a place in what is broadly speaking a Christian community um, without necessarily feeling they can sign up to a particular set of beliefs because they maybe identify more with the, the, the core practices and, and values, I suppose, of that particular community of people. I mean, on Saturday, this last Saturday, I uh, helped to marry a couple in an interfaith wedding. Uh, it was me and an imam, a Muslim imam, that conducted the, the ceremony. Uh, the, the woman, the bride, is from a Christian background, and uh, the bridegroom was, was Muslim. And it was an extraordinarily wonderful occasion and they had managed to find this imam who was, to me, just absolutely gorgeous. And he was so kind of open and, you know, what I would describe as progressively minded. Um, and it was just the most wonderful experience. Uh, and people there who were, some of them who were neither Muslim nor Christian, just felt swallowed up in this sort of sense of... Um, I suppose, you know, common humanity is the basic sort of thing. Now, the thing is, I don't want uh, that imam, uh, Osama, his name is, I I don't want him to become a Christian. I'm quite comfortable with him being a Muslim. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't get any sense he wants me to become a Muslim. Um, But I think that what we recognize is that there's, there are deeper kind of streams between us Mm -hmm. that unite us. So I, I don't, you know, I don't really profess to know exactly how all of that might look when you go forward into the future, but I'll tell you what, I'm really excited by it because I think there's a, there are all kinds of possibilities there. The process for me has been one of continual refinement of going, Oh, these are people like me until eventually I go, but they're not these half of them aren't or whatever. And you kind of, but there's this resonance like you, with that imam that you're saying that you go, Oh, but he's like me more than maybe these other Christians are like me. And that's, those people are going to continue to act. You know, there's a certain amount of people that have the same thread that you have that will continue to unite over time from different backgrounds. And, and, you know, that has a way of working itself out. 
Um, and it seems like the, the thing that's in common with it, as best as I can say right now, um, because I'm very post, I think of myself as post, maybe even post-Christian, um, I have no problem leaving that behind and going for, for, farther to a high, farther out <coughs> with that without rejecting the past of it at all. Um, but the thing that is in common is like this. Um, you said something about the divine touch within, or you'll hear divine spark and that kind of stuff. It's such a fruity a thing, but it's something about the connection. That, that people are actually connected or less individualistic or more of a collective thing. And, and, and it's like you, you even in psychedelic stuff, they talk about that. Like there's a new way of seeing humanity more collectively or something. There's something about people being connected and be able to see ourselves less tribal or something that is the best. That's the best way I can say that that's the, you know, beyond Christianity in the dogmatic sense that is what seems to continue on in that way. That's, you know, that's very abstract, but that's yeah. the best I can say it at this point. Yeah, no, I, well, I'm, I'm absolutely there with you, Matt. I, I, I agree with that. I think the thing is, if you, if you follow the metaphor of, of, you know, religions being like different languages, like different linguistic systems. Um, well, if you look at, you know, literal languages, um, the thought of abandoning them, and sort of melding them all into one, you know, sort of global language is anathema to me, because I think you can say things in one language you can't say in another, and mm-hmm. that there are, there's a whole way of life, a culture, all kinds of things that are wrapped up in language, which is part of the glorious beauty and diversity of our world. And so, you know, I can I think that multi multiculturalism, if that meant that we all just sort of find one new kind of flattened out culture. I think that would be awful. And I think that's the same when you take that into the context of different religious traditions. So I think that we live in a world which is increasingly multilingual and multicultural. I think that, that we need to enter into a religious multiculturalism, if you like. And so we need to learn the languages mm-hmm. of different traditions. Yeah, that's and, where I feel um, drawn to is the east, like there's so many things in other religions now that I know that that it's not that I need to go do those religions, but they're saying some of the same things that I've been getting from the Bible all these years in another exactly. perspective on that thing. So if I can have both of them, they both point to something that's neither one of them but beyond yeah. the two of them. So So I think I can I can say look, this is you know, Christianity is kind of my mother tongue if you like, you know. Now, the, the thing is, you know, there are those people who want to be total purists about language, isn't there? And, and you, you, know, you, you know, in this country, it would be we don't want any Americanisms, you know, <laughs> the kind of sully, uh, wonderful, pure kind of language or whatever. Well, to me, that is, if you forgive me saying, bollocks, really. Um, I think that languages are living, evolving things. But... You know, there's there's a whole history and heritage, a tradition that you carry forward in it. But um, it, it, at the end of the day, it's not about sort of this language over against that language. It's what are we trying to express through our languages, you know? And when I when I put that in the context of interfaith conversations that I have been involved in for years now with different pe- people from different religious traditions, 
I find that what we're actually trying to say, what we're trying to express often is very, very similar, mm-hmm. you know, but we, but we have different sort of, um, you know, different grammar in which we, we kind of express that. And we can have good old arguments about that, which I enjoy, you know, let's, 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 let's have arguments about things, but not because we think that ours is better than yours, but because it's, it's in the debate, it's in the conversation, it's in the argument that we're enriched by all the contributions that are being mixed in together there. Do you have a definition of spirituality? Well, I was going to ask real quick, just bouncing off of that, because I hear you guys talking, and all I can hear is like all my family members going, "This is like a lost conversation." Yeah, you are lost. You've been deceived by the world. They're talking about Buddhism and Muslim, and and you know, so how do you? Because going back to that, you were talking about beliefs. The that Christianity is so strongly uh, uh, foundation. Our foundation is in the belief of Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. You know, that's what I was taught. I mean, that was ingrained in me nonstop, nonstop while I was a child. It, he is the only way. So then if you uh, enter a relationship with people, uh, community or whatever, where there's different beliefs, it is the Christian's uh, uh, call to make sure they know about Jesus Christ. And so for the longest time that kept me away from those people. It didn't you know that 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 call to action didn't allow me to go into those groups and go, "Hey, let's be friends." It it only meant I have to change you. How do you uh like how do you where are you at now, Dave, with like it, is Jesus the only way to heaven? I mean, is that something that you just avoid or you don't like if you're in a conversation with people of different faiths? No, no, I I don't I wouldn't avoid it at all. I think that you know, I, I mean, I, I wrote a chapter in one of my books, which was saying, you know, I am a Jesus freak. I am. I mean, you know, when 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 one of my atheist neighbors said to me, I don't think you are a Christian, Dave. You know, you think, whoa. He said, I think you're a follower of Jesus. So I think, oh, my goodness. Well, I can embrace that, you know, yeah. because I would say that it is the figure of Jesus uh, which converts me back again and again when I get so disaffected and disillusioned with lots that I find in, in Christianity. Mm. Um, so Jesus remains a very central figure to me, but then Jesus has been wrapped up in a whole lot of kind of dogma and doctrine, uh, which is where I find the problems lie. Um, so I think that the problem, you know, one of the problems in what you just what you just said, if I come back to, is that um, I think that when Christianity is made to be something that is all about the afterlife, I think it distorts everything. Yeah. I think when you've got a strong emphasis on afterlife, it distorts everything because everything becomes about that then, you know. And actually, I think it can create some very disingenuous kind of sort of situations, really you know, because everything's about me kind of getting to the right place, getting the ticket to go to the right place. Um, and I remember talking to a young guy a while back who said to me, um, he got quite outraged with what I was saying. And he said, um, you know, if, 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 it isn't, if, if it isn't about sort of going to heaven, if, if I'm not going to heaven when I die instead of going to hell, you know, he said, then why wouldn't I go out and just get drunk and take drugs and sort of, you know, have sex everywhere and all the rest. And you think, Oh my goodness, that's interesting. That's a very revealing statement. Is, is it really this kind of threat of punishment or reward 
that is dictating what kind of person you are and what kind of life you're living now, because that's certainly not how it works for me. I think if, if, if everything came to an end, if when I fall into the grave, that is it. And in a funny way, I find the older I've got, the more I'm kind of, I'm okay with that. It's not, it's not where my hope lies. It's not actually what probably where my beliefs lie, but if that I can, I can live with that as it were. Um, (laughs) And I would, I would say nothing about my life would change if I knew that for certain, because this is the sort of person I've chosen to be, which for me is shaped by the figure of Jesus, by the teachings and the example and the life of Jesus. That isn't, now I know that that's not the only way that people, people come from other traditions and look different, but for me, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one who embodies uh, the values and the approach to life uh, that that I am choosing to follow. So I think, you know, as I've, as, as again, I said, you know, I think it's chapter one of my books, I said, you know, that um, I believe in life before death, the afterlife is above my pay grade, you know, because I don't know that. And you know what? Nobody knows that. Right. You, you, can, you know, people can argue as strongly and dogmatically as they like that they know what's going to happen to them when they die, but they don't. None of us does know. Uh, we, we may believe all kinds of things, but that's a different, that's a different thing. So to me, I think the best thing I think I've come to in my life about that is to say, do you know what? I'm completely agnostic. I'm happy to put that over there and say, you know, what will be, will be. Meanwhile, I'm following Jesus here and now, you know? So I think that when Christianity becomes Jesus is the way to go to heaven, which actually is not what the Bible says anyway. Um, you know, I think that that passage in John 14 is part of uh, uh, a tricky section of John's gospel, the final discourse, you know, uh, where he is clearly preparing his disciples in uh, the way the story is told. And it has to be said this, you know, this was the last of the gospels to be written 70 years or, or, or whatever it is later. Um and so the way the story is told is that Jesus is preparing them for what's to come. And, and of course, you know, Thomas said, you know, um, you know, said, sh- sh- show us the, the way or whatever it was, you know, I mean, that, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that when he said, I am the way, the truth and the life, that was an answer to a question from Thomas. But the question wasn't, are Muslims going to go to heaven or hell? you know, or whatever. That It wasn't a question about that. It was much more a question about an insecure, fearful bunch of people wanting to know that everything they'd invested in was actually okay, you know. And, right. and Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you know. But I think even then, what he said is, I am, not this doctrine is, not belief in, you know, the atonement or heaven or whatever it is, he said, I am. I, so it's, it's, it's a personal thing. It's about him as a person. And I would say that I am totally committed to the way of Jesus. Um, but exactly where that leads to, I don't know. Right. I, I want to read one of your quotes that really stood out to me. Um, you said, basically there are two kinds of Christianity. The one uh, the one insists that divine revelation is entirely a past event. 
The other takes the view that revelation is ongoing. Uh, the Spirit continues to say new things. Uh, I would argue that the first approach is not only mistaken, but also unbiblical. Jesus himself yeah. said that there were many things yet to be revealed, which he was unable to share, but that the Spirit would lead us all into truth. A progressive approach to revelation is not only permitted, but actually required by Christ's own vision of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I was, it's, see, I've was, i been wrestling with this for so long that the Bible, that's it. And it has to be literal. And that's the only thing. And, and, you know, even though it's thousands of years ago, you know, it, it's the only thing we have. And now it's gone silent. And I love this, that you're saying that there is revelation still, that the, the Holy Spirit is, a, is alive and God is revealing things to us. What do you think? I mean, even in your, your lifetime, or what do you see coming as far as God's revelation to us now? Is, is, is this an extension of more biblical uh, uh, stuff kind of in our, in our day? No, I think, um, I think, I mean, what I'm saying, and I, I've, uh, I like that quote, by the way. Did I really say that? Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. No, I think it's in, it's in a context in which I'm saying that I hear divine revelation everywhere, you know. So, yes, the Bible still plays an important part in my life. I think the Bible is the classic text of the Christian community. And and it has a very particular role to play. And there's, you know, there's so much I love about it. There's so much I argue within it. There's so much temptation to throw it away. But I always get it back out again, you know. And so the Bible is important to me. But divine, if divine revelation is, you know, the God of the universe, the God of, you know, 13.8 billion years of history since the Big Bang, if that God is revealed in just this one book, then I am very disappointed, you know, because I think yeah. that can't possibly be true. So I think the Big Bang is divine revelation, you know. I think that the whole process of evolution is an unfolding divine revelation. So I think that God is revealed through science. God is revealed through art, through music, through poetry, through literature, through storytelling, through human relationships, through nature, through the whole cat and caboodle, really. Because, um, you know, I, I believe passionately in uh, divine imminence, God present in the whole fabric of the universe, and that includes human life. There's a great bit, you know, in, in, um, in kind of Anglo-Catholic, you know, the Church of England sort of more Catholic sort of tendencies, there's, there's what's called an offertory prayer, which is when you, when, when you bring the bread and wine and place it on the table, there's a prayer, which sometimes the priest may just say to themselves, or it may be said out loud, which, which says something like, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness, we have these gifts to offer which earth has given and human hands have made, they will become for us the bread of life and the cup of salvation. So I love that prayer, see, because that's a whole way of looking at things to me, which is saying that God is revealed through nature, through the stuff, you know, uh, the, the, the stuff of earth, which earth has given, but also through human culture, which human hands have made. So it's, it's not just something of nature, a gift of nature, but it's the gift of human endeavor as well that put together, these will become for us the bread of life and the cup of salvation is, is what the prayer is saying. And that's how, how I see it, you know. So to me, um, yeah, 
saying that, you know, God only made one album, as it were, right. you know, <laughs> is just unbelievable to me. As I precious agree. and important as that album is, I think that, um, so I think that any dynamic theology of the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, has to lead you to a place of constantly unfolding revelation, you know, the, the, because the spirit is constantly uh, present, revealing more and more uh, of who and what God is. And I, and I think that also me, makes it so much more alive for me and that my story matters. It's not just the story yeah. of these, these biblical characters, but Toby's story, you know, Dave's story, Matt's story, that they matter too. Like your, your experience at the wedding last week, that's a, what a beautiful story that, that should be shared. And it, of course, God is a part of that. That there's this connection and the spirit that you felt. I mean, that's not just, you know, oh, well, I can, you know, that, that, that was done and over with. That, that's something a part of the story, meaning that the story of God and us is still very much alive. Absolutely. I, I just totally agree with that because I think that, you know, in, in the more kind of traditional notion that many of, many of us have grown up with, revelation is such a static thing, you know, just contained within this particular set of words that people pour over and argue about and try to read things in and read things out of. Um, and as I say, I am not diminishing the importance of the, of the Bible here. Sure. But what I'm saying is that is such a mean, mingy kind of notion of God and of divine revelation. Um, and, and it leaves the rest of us and our stories, as you've said, just standing around watching and sort of applauding and saying, oh, it's all very wonderful. You know, this, this is, it's all over there. And this is what I think is so lacking, even in churches who stress that Christ is in us. In fact, that's nothing more than a proposition. You know, if we believe the reality of it, you know, that God's spirit indwells us, then that's a living, evolving thing that's going on all the time. And as you say, the fabric of our stories become divine revelation. And um, mm. sure, it's a mixture of all kinds of things. And that's the nature of the world, you know. So we exercise spiritual intelligence. We exercise discernment uh, all the time. Um, but I think, you know, the way the expression I've often used is, you know, that I'm bumping into God all the time, you know, and there's, there's this, uh, the poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning, you know, which, which has in it the, the bit about the, the burning bush and Moses and stuff. And, the, and her poem sort of says that, um, that every common bush is a flame, you know, every common bush is not just that bush, not just that plot of land that's holy, every of land is holy every bush is a flame and it's it says that you know there are those who see this only those who see know this and the rest sit round and pluck blackberries you know and that's the thing you know that a lot of people who just sort of pick blackberries in the world they just kind of take the words other others of us see that every single blackberry every bit of this world is in its own way divine revelation and that, I, that's very exciting to me. That yeah. is fascinating. Let's talk about the name Bad Christian a little bit. I don't know when you encountered us um, or saw Bad Christian on the internet, knowing that you had a, a book called Bad Christian before this podcast existed. But the story of how we got to the name Bad Christian 
it's fascinating because it's it uh Toby and I had been in the music scene and had just gotten dissolution with the way that that even all gets and started doing these house shows and our music's always been about Christian themes and our struggle and our journey um and so we we're doing house shows and we're disillusioned with church and we're thinking we got to start a church in a pub just like you were just like you had done we didn't even know but you know we're thinking we got to like just chew the fat and talk in pubs and go to houses and do these things you know that kind of uh, stuff and we didn't have a, a good name for that or anything else like that and I was sitting with a, um, and it started to get some traction it was people responding to that uh, type of thing that we were doing that impulse and uh, I was sitting with a guy who who's a real smart and creative guy and just trying to workshop with him what are we doing how's this work and he was trying to help us think through stuff and he heard all the stuff that I was saying, and then he just wrote down on a piece of paper. He said he he uh, he held it up and showed it to me. It said "bad Christian." I said, "That's it." So that's it. That's what. That's exactly. I guess what we're saying because nobody else would claim to be a bad Christian. They just everybody wants to be a good Christian. It makes me sick, and then they pretend to be, and then mm-hmm. they've missed the whole point. Uh, and so whatever he reflected back out of what we had been saying and doing, he just said bad Christian, and he said uh, he looked it up the domain, uh, and I, we looked it up right there on the spot, and there was no badchristian.com. And this is in a time when it was like you can't even get a two word domain for less than ten thousand dollars. It seems like every two word domain dot com was gone and then when he looked it up and there was no bad christian dot com I was like that is so such an obviously avoided concept because who would ever want that label? Who would because e- everybody that's attracted to Christianity wants to look good, and so there's this whole vacuum of like, well, there's, no, there's nobody even doing this or saying this at all. It's like that's it. So uh, we got, I had to negotiate with some domain service for a few hundred bucks and got the domain, um, and then later found that you had a book and you'd already you know even coined the term and, and done that. Um, and to hear that how much of the resonant stuff with it is really fascinating. And I, I want to say and I hope um, you didn't feel that we have stolen your name or made it any more difficult for you. <laughs> in any way no. because you have a book you know called that <laughs> i found out i found out about you when i tried to get the domain <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh yeah no i think it's great i think it's great because hey none of us owns anything do we yeah. uh and and to know that there are other people who identify with that is it's a source of pleasure and joy really i think i mean it's interesting because it People identify with it in different ways. Um, it can mean different things to people. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of people uh, have said to me that the, as soon as they saw it, they felt, that's me, you know. Um, partly perhaps because they feel, felt to them it meant I'm a bit of a failure, but it's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's different things. For me, actually... Where I came to it from was um, I, I came across. I've, I've always been a I've always been a bird enthusiast, you know, been a birder, as we say. And um, I saw this book called How to Be a Bad Bird Watcher uh, by a guy called Simon Barnes, who's actually the sports writer. He was the sports writer for the Times newspaper, and um, I thought that was a great title. And I like birds, so I've got the book, and it, it begins with him saying. I am a bad bird watcher. Well, that's an outright lie, actually, because he's a very, very good bird watcher. He's he's the patron of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, actually. But um, I quickly saw this book is actually a tract. You know, it's a tract for bird watching for his passion. He's he's not writing for the faithful. He's writing to try and draw people into something that he's passionate about. 
So he says, um, you look out of a window, you see a bird, you enjoy. Congratulations, you're a bad bird watcher. And, you know, he says, and it, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you know that that's a, a green finch or a goldfinch for you to enjoy it, you know. Um, so he says, you know, let's, let's think about it. You think you don't know much about birds. Well, you know, a sparrow and a blackbird and a robin and a thrush and an owl. And so there's 10 to which we could add a mallard and a magpie and a parrot. So there's, tw- so actually, you know, quite a lot. So when I read this, I thought, oh my God, I've got to write a book because this is what I think about God. I think that it's a really bad thing to leave God because what he's doing is taking bird watching out of the hands of what we would call twitchers. Do you know twitchers? And geeks and people with expensive binoculars, you know, Mm. and he's saying birds belong to everybody. And I thought, Mm. you know, it's a bad thing to leave God in the hands of religious geeks and twitchers, you know, (laughs) Um, because I think God is part of everybody's life. And so that's kind of where I came from with it, with this sort of wanting to affirm the fact. And I suppose really thinking there are, there are so many people in whose life God is present. They just don't know it or they don't use that language I want to write a book that sort of describes it in such a way that I hope they will become enthused. Because really, see, he's being a bit sneaky because he's saying it doesn't matter. But what he's doing, he's drawing you into a journey. Mm-hmm. You know, So as you go on, you think, well, I'd, li- I'd like to know a bit more about this. You know, And I suppose that's what I've tried to do. It's, it is kind of an evangelistic tool. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's like a, it's like a call to the fellow misfits. It's like a, yeah. a signal to just them. Even if other people are going to take it wrong, that's okay. That's, that's, yeah. that's the nice part about that. So the, so the great thing is, you know, and I, I, I wanted the book definitely to uh, get beyond the kind of the Christian bookshop ghetto, you know, I wanted it to, to get out there, which, and I changed publishers at that point and got a publisher who are a more general publisher, which was, which was great. And, you know, ever since I have had a constant stream of, of emails and messages from people, some of whom are, you know, Christian people or church going people who are saying, wow, you know, this is me. Um, but many, many, Others from people who seem to begin often with something like, I'm not really religious, but. Mm-hmm. And the but yeah. is saying, but I really like what you're saying, you know, and I identify with this. So that's, um, that's kind of something that makes my heart sing, really, every time I hear that kind of coming back from people, you know. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I often say, you know, bad's, bad's the new good. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that's so beautiful, though, because it really is true. Like there is no curtain between us and God. And there, it always feels like, well, if you have the right equipment or in the right group or, you know, what you could be a bird watcher if you had, as long as you have this, this, this and this. Or you could be a musician as long as you have this, you know, all those things. And, and what you're saying there is, no, right now, who you are is enough. And I think a lot of people don't know that or, or it, it feels scary to believe that, that you're enough as, as you are. And that there yeah. isn't there isn't a, a curtain that you have to get behind, and you know the great gods behind it, and you you know you you don't have access that you do uh, to lots of things, even your own mind and thoughts, uh, which is you know it, it is scary. But um, yeah, they, you know I've met so many people, um, you know after I've taken a funeral of people who don't come to church or or whatever, and I'm I'm in the pub 
for whatever other reason with people. And, um, and they'll often sort of say kind of quite apologetically, I'm afraid I, I don't really go to church very much, which means never really. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I say, you know what? I don't think God cares whether you go to church or not. You know, I do. I'm a vicar. I want you to come. <laughs> but if I believed that God put people into categories that are so crude as to say, this one is a Christian, this one isn't, this one's a believer, this isn't, this, then I would be an atheist instantly because I think that God is less intelligent than me. And that is ridiculous because I can see as just as a human being that that life is much more complicated than whether people belong to this club or whether they say they sign up to these set of beliefs or whatever. Life's much more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And I think if God were stupid enough, if that were what God were like, as to say, you know, you can go to heaven because you've sort of, you know, you've said the sinner's prayer or you've gone to church or you believe in the Trinity uh, and you can't, even though you are doing amazing things to help solve the problems of the world. Well, for goodness sake, who... And, I, and I, you know, that's what I sometimes think. I sometimes think, you know, people who are so dogmatic about, you know, who's going where and who's in. I think, I don't know if you've ever seriously thought about what you're saying. What I think is you're, you're parroting what you've heard said in a thousand sermons. Because if you just as an intelligent person, which you are, sit down and think about this, it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm, right. You know? But it threatens your certainty at that point, though, that you, you, you want, once yeah. you feel like you know something, even if you're nine years old, when you know it, you don't want to unknow it later. That's very uncomfortable. And everybody wants to, be, to know that they're a good parent. And you, yeah. it's, it, I consider it a, an exercise in rationality to, to debias that type of thinking. It's like, of course, I need to know that I'm a great dad and I'm a moral person and I do right and there is a right and wrong. And I know what, it, I mean, that is such a strong need for us to move forward in the world that you have to, you know, it opens all the marketing, capitalism, abuse of everything to market to say, well, I have Jesus. I have the keys to the, to your self-security of your goodness. I mean, that's, so as the people that are saying, live your best Christian life today, do this. Like that's the most thing to be scared of is the people telling you what's the most good thing you can be is and how to be the most yeah. good thing you could ever be. That's the easiest thing to sell. Yeah, absolutely. So. That's true. Yeah. Dave, this has been great. I, I, we really appreciate your time. I'm, I'm telling you, you really are to us like a, especially now getting to talk to you and it, it, this like a pioneer. Do you ever think you were just before your time? I mean, we, we have been re wrestling with the idea of, like Matt and I were talking, this is probably uh, maybe two years ago, talking about the idea of post-Christianity. And then to find out you wrote a book called Post-Evangelical back in the 90s. You know, 90, you wrote it in 93, came out in 95, whatever. Uh, that's just phenomenal. I mean, I just think that's so, like, you really are a forward thinker. And I think that the reason you're a forward thinker is because you really do care about people and you want people to all feel welcome. And I, and I just really appreciate that about you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you for all the, you know, the work you've done. I don't know if you know the writings of Stephen Toulmin, who's a, uh, he, he's a British kind of philosopher and social commentator and so on. He's, he's, he's dead now, but um, he, he, he wrote some important stuff back in the 90s about the kind of onset of postmodernity and so on. And, um, 
you know, he, he said that we have a, a choice between two attitudes toward the future. It's one of imagination or nostalgia. He went on to say it's a choice between facing the future or backing into it. And I, th- I find that very evocative, you know, because I think that's what, you know, so much of the church as I've known it, and I, and I love the church, you know, and I love people in the church. But what I've seen for decades is people backing into the future. They're, they're nostalgically hanging on to this past, like that's where salvation lies, you know. Um, and, and we have to go into the future. That's not an option because that's how time works. But you either face it full on with imagination and boldness and courage with all the challenges and, and you know, the anxiety that that brings, uh, or you kind of pretend it's not happening and just kind of back into it. And, and that's, that's the way I, I kind of see it really, you know. Yeah, I totally agree. Where, uh, I know that they can find your books on uh, Amazon and, and the like, but where, if people want to find out more about you, where, where would you want to send them? So, so the other thing is that, you know, at the beginning of, of our first lockdown here, um, I was kind of thinking about doing something online, but I couldn't really quite get my backside into gear, really. And uh, so <laughs> as soon as lockdown began, some friends said, you've got to do something for us, Dave. So um, I'm here in London at the moment, but I do spend half of my time in, in Somerset, which is out in a very nice kind of out-of-town place where I have got a lovely shed in the garden. So I said, okay, I'll do something in the shed. So I started the Holy Shed, which I've done every, every week now. I've, I'm ju- I've just, just completed week 72 oh, wow. <laughs> of every week doing this kind of, and really what it's turned out to be is kind of uh, a bit of a online community, you know, so, uh, you know, I've got people coming into my shed from New Zealand and Australia, from the States, from China, from all kinds of places. Um, and uh, it's kind of, fitted a need so far and it needs to kind of unfold into where it needs to go from here. But uh, yeah, you can, so you can find the Holy Shed. There's a Facebook page called the Holy Shed, but all the kind of films of of that are are on YouTube um, on my YouTube. So if you do Dave Tomlinson and Holy Shed, you'll find me there. I'm just doing, doing, I said I'd do a little series in this summer period around, uh, the title of how to read the Bible and still be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I think for a lot of people reading the Bible is what kind of <laughs> sends them away. So I've been t- trying to introduce people to actually the fact that there's some really lovely stuff, you know, and you think you hate the old Testament. Well, I, I, I want to lead you into some good stuff there, you know? So that's kind of what I've, what I've been doing. And, uh, you know, Love people it. are very welcome to join me. And I, I have I one more question for you before you go. Yeah, okay, um, go on. Just as somebody might be on a find themselves on a trajectory like you, I, um, what would what does one encounter as mistakes they make between the age of uh, forty two and your age? Just so I just <laughs> just if I've been on a, some similar track as you, what are the mistakes? What are those mistakes? You mean, you mean what would 45? you tell yourself? At? I'm forty two <laughs> right now, you know. But yeah, between now and forty five, the age you are now. That's right. <laughs> but what what's, what mistakes do you tend to see that's in those young men that do this and they do that, whatever? I think, but I mean, you know, in that later middle age. I think if I if I could go back to being forty two, you know, I think I would be much more confident about myself and what I feel and think and less intimidated by what other people 
who I've perhaps counted as being some kind of experts or whatever are telling me. And that's, that's why, you know, I wrote the book Black Sheep and Prodigals because, you know, I've, I've, it's taken me a long time to totally embrace my inner black sheep. I think we've all got an inner black sheep. We've, you know, but, but for some people, that poor little lamb has been shoved down into some dark mm-hmm. basement mm-hmm. and it's bleating away down there and we don't pay any attention, you know. So I think, I think, you know, speaking to my 42-year-old self, I would say, you know, just believe because you know what? Such a lot of the reason that you, you didn't have confidence was because of kind of underlying fears and anxieties that maybe, because, you know, I've, I've always been someone who, who's kind of, question myself, you know, I, I, I have, I'm not one of those people who, you know, kind of never doubts what I'm saying. You know, I do lie awake at night and question and think, and, you know, I do second guess, but, you know, I think that's kind of part of, of how a personality is made. But I think that I would, I would say, be more confident about yourself, trust your instincts more, always be open to be wrong and be prepared. You know, I think an important thing in life is to find your reverse gear. You know, you need a reverse gear because every one of us is going to go down cul-de-sacs. We're going to go down some blind alleys. But you know what? That's part of the adventure. I don't want a journey where you get on highway, whatever it is, you know, at this sort of turn off here and then you're on it until you're a thousand miles down the road you know with no turn offs on the way mm-hmm. i want to go down the little kind of windy roads and explore and i think when you know when someone puts a sign up and says heretics only down here then i kind of want to go down there and see what right. they've got to say you know because <laughs> right. i think uh, you know sometimes heretics have been the people with really interesting things to say right so um yeah trust your instincts i think but 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 be prepared to go in reverse and admit that you you did get that wrong, really. That's, That's wonderful. Terrific. That's terrific. Yeah, most decisions are two-way doors, but we act like they're one-way. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Dave, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I feel um, like it's going to brighten my day and beyond, so thank you. Thank you. I've loved it. I've loved talking to you guys. And uh, as I say, I found I found out that you existed because I wanted to get the, the domain name first. But I'm so glad you got it. I'm so glad that you're who you are. It's good to know that, you know, I've got friends and brothers and sisters there who feel the same way. And um, it's great. Well, we're sorry if you catch any bad reputation because of our shenanigans. If if you get attributed to some of the stuff we've done, you won't like that. I'm just just hoping, actually, that uh, I'm having dealings with, uh, with your embassy here this week, actually, in London, because... I'm hoping to get a visa to come to the States because it's pretty hard at the moment. Oh, I bet. And, uh, so uh, I'm hoping to get a visa because the, the Bishop of Wyoming has invited me to come and talk to his uh, clergy conference in October. And um, I'm, I'm really impressed. He's, he seems like a really great guy. He's only been in the job for, you know, the past year or so, I think. And um, he's invited me to come and talk about New Frontiers in kind of theology and church and so on. So I'm, I'm really fingers crossed hoping that uh, oh, yeah. That'd I be can great. get in there. All right, that was Dave Tomlinson. Make sure you go check him out, um, The Holy Shed as well. And don't forget the question. Uh, you can go to momenthouse.com forward slash Emory. That is happening next week, so get August your tickets 12th. now. August 12th. What did I say? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Just August 12th. Is the, you said next week or whatever. Next week, August 12th. 
Um, yeah, check it out. Uh, we'll see y'all later.